Thank you all for coming. My name is Amy Erickson, and I'm going to talk to you today about an exhibition that I curated in the city of London. And unfortunately, the exhibition closed yesterday, um, but I will show you pictures of it. Uh, there is a virtual exhibition online, uh, so you can see all of the panels and the way it looked um, as well. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I did the exhibition, the background to it, and, um, and why I think it's important. So this exhibition was based in, uh, in the, right in the city of London. It started in, uh, next to St. Paul's in Paternoster Square. These are the first three exhibition stands. And then it followed the line of Cheapside, these are, this is Paternoster Square still. It's showcasing the business cards of women from the 18th century. Business cards started to be printed in the 18th century. It's the beginning of them, and they are very ornate. They are engraved, and what we did was to blow them up to this size so that you can see what they look like. And normally, the business cards are about this big, like this. They're quite small. So we blew them up and put them on these large uh, panels. And the backgrounds are even larger enlargements of the same business cards. So from St. Paul's, we move down um, towards Cheapside and end up in front of the Royal Exchange. The Royal Exchange is just opposite Manor House, which is the, uh, the mayor's residence, and the Bank of England. So trade cards. Let's have a closer look at some of them. This is a selection of trade cards. All of these are online at the John Johnson collection held in the Bodleian Library. So on the far left, you have Elizabeth Hodnett at the Golden Sugar Loaves and Oil Jar. This is the period when they're still using shop signs rather than street numbers. Street numbers don't come along until the end of the 18th century. Mary Scully is at the sign of the Ham and Lion, but she's also number 32, St. Nicholas Lane. So she's covering her bases. She's giving you a number and a sign. Uh, there's also a coffin plate maker, Margaret Smith, a print seller and stationer, Dorothy Mercier, and Elizabeth Zouch, Zouch, Zouch um, who is selling all sorts of hooped petticoats and riding dress. Now, we chose Cheapside because it was the center of luxury shopping in the city for 500 years. We identified 75 trade cards for women in the Cheapside area over the 18th century. And that is not straightforward, because although uh, all of the trade cards are online, almost all collections are online. These are from, from the John Johnson, as I said. but. The British Museum has the largest collection of 18th century trade cards. They have 16,000 of them. The John Johnson has a few hundred. But the problem is, to identify the women's cards, you need a female first name. And most cards actually just use the last name, or they use and co at the end. So this is one of the uh, best-known businesswomen of the 18th century, Eleanor Code, and you can see that she simply advertises herself as Codes. 
She manufactured artificial stone. The reason that was important was because to carve real stone was extremely uh, expensive. There's a building boom in 18th century London. She's the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And they need lots of carved ornaments for architecture. They need statues. They need monuments. They need engraved plaques. She does all of this, but it's cast stone. It's artificial. It's not carved stone. So it's much cheaper. You can reproduce a design all the way down a building. And she works for all of the major architects of 18th century London, including Robert Adam, John Nash, John Soane. There are 600 sites worldwide where her artificial stone is still known to exist. Uh, and it is almost completely undegraded. It does not deteriorate uh, with weather, which stone does. So she is always represented, she's the, as I said, the most famous, she's always represented as extremely unusual, um, sometimes as unique as a businesswoman in the 18th century. So I'm going to show you that code was exceptionally prominent, but she was by no means unique, and probably not even unusual. This business card is extraordinary in its bravura. It, it's got Latin mottos on it, and this shows the fiery force, that's what the young woman's belt says, vanquishing Daedalus the maker, the sculptor, for the god or spirit of design. So the, the, she's holding, the statue is holding um, uh, tools of design. So to create something like this requires a great deal of self-confidence. <coughs> Trade cards are not the only source of information we have on women in business in London. The city of London was unique in, in England in requiring women as well as men to take the freedom of the city in order to trade within its jurisdiction. So when I say the city of London, this is a 1720 map, and the city is this walled area, and some small places outside. That's its jurisdiction, that's what it controls. Um, Code's factory is here on the south bank, where the Royal Festival Hall now is. Uh, and there is a monument in the path, in the, in the towpath there. Uh, it's a millstone from her factory. So this, the city freedom granted for a fee uh, to members of guilds or companies. Guilds in London are called companies. And the records of apprenticeship that were generated by those companies uh, can show us something about the nature of urban women's business activities. This is an apprenticeship indenture. And at the top, it says, this indenture witnesseth that Eleanor Mosley, daughter of Roland Mosley of the city of York, apothecary, doth put herself apprentice to George Tyler, citizen and clockmaker of London, and Lucy, his wife, who useth the trade and business of a milliner. So the husband and the wife have different trades. We can also find from this indenture 
that Mosley was literate. She signs her own indenture. This is a legal contract between her and uh, the Tylers. It's not her parents. And that she paid, or her parents paid, a 50 pound premium to the Tylers. That's for her training. She's expected to live with them for seven years. They will train her, and then she will work for them during that seven years. The indenture refers continually to what looks like Mr. and Mrs. Those would have been pronounced master and mistress. The, the pronunciation of those two didn't change until the later 18th century. Master becomes mister, mistress becomes missus. So what it says is that Eleanor is not allowed to play cards, she's not allowed to gamble, she's not allowed to um, take away the goods of her master and mistress. Um, and in return, they are required to train her in millinery, not in clock making. So millinery at this time is not hat making. Millinery is high-end dressmaking. This is the top of the needle trades at this period. And Mosley is one of two case studies where I can reconstruct a, a sketchy life history of these women. I know she was born in 1700, thanks to parish registers. Um, she was apprenticed at age 17. She was the first of 16 siblings born to her parents. But all of the surviving children received an equal amount of 100 pounds, minus their apprenticeship fees, because the other ones were apprenticed too in different places for different amounts. After serving her seven years apprenticeship, um, Eleanor became free of the clockworkers clockmaker's company, uh, that is, she, she, she became a free woman, and she opened her own shop in millinery in Gracechurch Street. She herself took seven apprentices through the clockmaker's company, and they were the daughters of a goldsmith, a sea captain, and clergyman. Now, the premiums that were paid for her, to her, with her apprentices, were comparable to the premiums that uh, boys were apprenticed with to merchants. Boys' apprenticeships to merchants could go much higher, but the average was the same. Now, Lucy Tyler, Mosley's mistress, took six apprentices of her own. So Eleanor was never the only apprentice in the household. There were always other apprentices as well. George himself took one apprentice in clockmaking. But Lucy took all of her apprentices through her husband's guild, the clockmakers, because as a married woman, she had no right to any movable property, including guild membership. So that system of coverture, as it's called, where the husband covers the wife's legal personality, was unique to England. And that's the reason that married women take their husband's name, which was also unique to England. Mosley herself, when she was in her late 40s, the clockmakers record uh, quarterly dues. Every time you pay, they, they, they tick it off in their, in their dues book. But from her late 40s, Mosley is lost from the clockmakers' company because they wrote married under that quarter. And at that point, 
without the name of her husband, she becomes untraceable. Now, when Mosley married, her guild membership, along with all her other movable assets, would have gone to her new husband, unless she protected them by private settlement. Perfectly legal to protect them by private settlement. Almost certainly, given her training um, and her experience, she would have made such a settlement. But these settlements don't survive uh, because they were not publicly registered documents. They were private documents uh, between the two parties. So they're lost, unless they happen to survive accidentally in family papers. So London in the 18th century had 80 different companies or guilds. But there was no milliner's company. So that means that milliners were scattered throughout all of the other companies. I've taken a 10% sample of the 80 companies. And in the first half of the 18th century, I can identify 45 milliners with their address, their location. And that is, sorry, that's not even good, this map. So here we have the wall. This is the city wall. This is Cheapside. No trade card for Eleanor Mosley survives. Of course, not all businesswomen would have needed a trade card, a business card. For example, those milliners would all have used silks designed by Anna Maria Garthwaite. Over 30 years, Garthwaite sold more than 1,000 silk designs to Spitalfields weavers. But because she was not dealing direct to the public, she didn't need a trade card. Some public-facing businesses may have been sufficiently well-known that they didn't require advertisement, too. My second case study is the Sleep family which is remarkable for three trade cards in one family. All three of the Sleep sisters learned fan making from their mother. So Esther here and Martha here were both unmarried. So they both shared the last name of Sleep. But their sister Mary had married John Sansom. So she put underneath her name, fan maker from Mrs. Sleeps, for the brand identification. Now, in addition to being a well-known fan maker, this Mrs. Sleep, the mother, bore 17 children, of whom five survived. The uh, birth rates among these women, where I know them, suggest that they were wet nursing their children. They were sending them to some other woman to suckle because they're having a child every year rather than every other year, which would be the expectation if they're breastfeeding. Now, the daughters, uh, Esther and Martha, took the freedom of their father's company by patrimony. They didn't serve a formal apprenticeship. Perfectly legal to take it by patrimony. Boys did it as well as girls. But their father's company was the musicians. 
because he was actually a musician. So they were members of the musician's company. I don't know what company Mary was a member of because it would have been her husband's company and I have no idea. There's no index to tell me. I can't look it up. Esther Sleep is one of very few businesswomen for who we have a portrait. We know what they look like. That top left is a miniature done by Gervais Spencer, who is one of the best-known miniature portraits of the uh, mid-18th century. She almost certainly paid for it herself, and it was probably a present for her husband. When they got married, her husband wasn't even really out of his apprenticeship, so he wasn't legally allowed to get married. He had to ask special permission. Um, sometime after they got married and they moved for his job, Esther reprinted her business card no longer as Esther Sleep, but now as Esther Burney. So she doesn't indicate her marital status, despite the rule of coverture. She just changes her last name. She's still dealing in fans and in jewelry as well. So with capital-intensive trades, like uh, millinery and fan-making, marriage doesn't seem to have changed a woman's professional trajectory. Esther married Charles Burney at age 24, but she was the financial mainstay of the family through at least the first three children. Um, after that, they leave London, and leaving London, I can no longer trace her because no other city required that, that businesses be registered. Um, she, Est Esther Sleep Burney will become the mother of the 18th century novelist Frances Burney. So all three sisters had, sleeps, had, had shops along Cheapside. One, Martha, Mary, Esther. They're ranged along rather like you, you would find um, outlets of Gap ranged along Oxford Street. Um, and then Esther Sleep Burney just moves down there. So all of these shops are going to have the shop on the ground floor, the living quarters above, and the workshop on the top floor. Most of the goods made in, uh, sold in Cheapside in the 18th century were actually made there. Not all of them, but most of them. And that's true through the 18th century. It changes toward the very end and into the 19th century. It's possible that they may have shared a workshop rather than each running their own workshop because they would have had to hire journeywomen. Uh, they would have had to hire servants for each one. They would have had to hire painters and so forth. Um, so they may have shared that, the designing, the painting, the mounting. Uh, but they would have had apprentices who lived in and hired journeywomen who lived out. There was a huge range of fans in the 18th century uh, available and manufactured in London, from very cheap printed ones, a few pennies, up to the top end, and the sleeps are doing the top end. So this is what a fan looks like before it's mounted on the sticks. And these are the very expensive ones. They were actually fan merchants because they're dealing wholesale as well as retail. They're importing from Asia through the East India Company, uh, and, and they're um, manufacturing as well. So we would call them merchants rather than makers, probably. Over the course of the 18th century, there are probably about 300 fan makers in London, about half men and half women. 
The milliners, there are probably 500 of them, and they're overwhelmingly female. So that bottom fan, if we enlarge it, looks like that. So these are made on silk or on very, very fine leather. They are embroidered with gold and silver thread, uh, gold and silver sequins, and uh, with tiny pieces of shell, as well as with hand painting. Uh, the sticks are made of ivory. You can get cheaper ones made with bone and even cheaper ones made with wood. And that will affect the cost of your fan. So when you go into a fan shop, you can choose which kinds of sticks you want, how many colors you want on your fan, and that will affect the cost of your fan. So the sleep family clearly had a family-based network, but we can also see apprenticeship networks. So Elizabeth Hutt traded as an upholsterer. She was in business with her son. The business is called Elizabeth Hutt and Son. I don't know what his name was. They're in St. Paul's Churchyard. And around 1740, they take five apprentices, both girls and boys, uh, in the Cloth Workers Company, because that's their guild. So Jane Cox is one of Elizabeth's apprentices. She opens her own shop at the other end of Cheapside on Gracechurch Street and takes into partnership one of Jane's own apprentices. So it's a series of apprentices. Another apprentice of Elizabeth's was named John Eilef, and he took over Elizabeth's own shop in St. Paul's Churchyard. But he proclaims himself successor to Mrs. Elizabeth Hutt on his business card. So what about other trades? Printers. There were probably 250 women uh, trading in their, in their own name. Uh, there, there may be more trading with the husband uh, in London in the 18th century in the printing business. This is uh, one of the best known, Tace Soul Railton, who printed for nearly 60 years uh, and ran the, the workshop, the, the printing and the distribution. Silversmiths, gold and silversmiths. 165 women have been identified as trading as gold or silversmiths. Uh, that doesn't include the ones who were apprenticed, but there's no evidence that they actually traded. So this is only the ones who, who they know were in business. This is not my work, this is other people's work. Uh, the top one, Anne Tanqueray in 1729 became subordinate goldsmith to the king. Her husband before her had been subordinate to go goldsmith to the king. Uh, her husband had been her father's apprentice. Just because you married your father's apprentice didn't mean you didn't know the business as well. Elizabeth Godfrey was also the daughter of a silversmith and the wife of two more silversmiths. But she spent her whole lifetime producing ornate silver, uh, 20 years of it as a widow under her own mark but the rest of it, of course, isn't traced because it's under her husband's mark. Hester Bateman, we have no idea where she came from. She did not come from a known silversmithing family. Uh, she was widowed in 1760 and turned her business into one of the most successful mid-size manufacturing companies uh, in, at the time, with 
her daughters and her sons and her apprentices. Now these women had obviously substantial capital. They came from families that apprenticed daughters to profitable trades as a part of a family strategy to ensure their economic and social security. But occupations that did not require the freedom of the city were particularly open to women and men who possessed more skill than they did physical capital. So for example, schools. Schools were a, um, a booming business in the 18th century. With increasing wealth, there was a desire to send your children out to school. These schools are appealing to a more elevated social status than the women we've just been looking at. The women we've just been looking at were educated within the family. These are um, for gentry daughters, mostly, but also for city daughters aspiring to gentry status. Writing was another means of earning a living that was growing very rapidly in the 18th century. There are no business cards for writers. They didn't work that way. So these are the ones I came up with off the top of my head. These are the non-fiction writers living in London in the 18th century. Uh, and you can see that there's a wide range of different types of, um, of writing that they're producing. And these are the poets, playwrights, and novelists living in London in the 18th century. I only know of portraits of two of them. For some of them, um, we don't even know a birth and death date. Where it says circa, it hasn't been ascertained. Where it says FL for florit, it means she was publishing in those years, but we have no idea when she was born or when she died. And these are the actresses and theater company managers. Now, despite what is often described as the dubious reputation of actresses, um, all actresses were entitled Mrs. in the 18th century as an occupational title, not as a marital title. This has no marital connotation whatever until the 19th century. It simply means that they are an employer. It means they have capital. And many actresses were also uh, theater managers, uh, which means that they had uh, profits from the theater coming in, just as actors were also theater managers. Now, these ones, I admit, I could not come up with off the top of my head. I had to look in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography for these, um, because there is a wonderful search function now where you can do that. You can search for female actress, 18th century. Now, this is not, the story I'm telling is not entirely one of success. Women in the companies did not take part in the governance of those companies, as far as we can tell. They did not take part in the governance of the city, because the, the companies controlled the governance of the city. 
Some businesswomen certainly landed in debtors' <coughs> prison. Uh, England uh, imprisoned their debtors for complicated reasons. Um, or some even ended their lives in the workhouse. Surely many ended them in relative po poverty, even if not actually in the workhouse. We don't know if this happened more frequently for females than for males. It wouldn't be surprising if it did, because of the restrictive rules of coverture, which under normal circumstances don't seem to have made much difference. But in any particular circumstance, could mean that the husband owned everything the wife had. So he could quite legally come and take it away. What's interesting, I think, is that despite the rule of coverture, marriage seems to have made little difference to continuing in business, which suggests that labor and assets and skills were much more central to women's identity than marriage, because they took them into marriage and they took them out of marriage. And uh, much more secure as well, obviously. I've been piling on the examples to show the ubiquity of middle-class women as entrepreneurs. Entrepreneur is an 18th century word. It starts in this, in this period and it means an employer or someone employed on their own account, self-employed. These women on, on my numbers would roughly have numbered in the thousands. But they employed directly and through their supply chains orders of magnitude more women as well as men. And that would have been in the tens of thousands. The population of the city of London in this period, it actually remains stable because London is growing, as, as a capital, is growing hugely over the 18th century. But within the city walls, that space is so tight that it can't grow. So it stays around 200,000 throughout this period. Now, 200,000 people in total means roughly 60,000 adult women. Which means, I think, that in London, all women below the top 2%, top 2% being gentry and aristocracy, should be assumed to be in gainful employment unless one can prove otherwise. They were either exploiting their capital and skills as employers, or they were working for wages to produce goods and services. Now, when I, I originally gave a short talk to open an exhibition in, this, in the London Guildhall Museum, which is a, a room about this size, <laughs> uh, and it, uh, it had some of the guild records, the, the apprenticeship and the freedom registers and things like that, for my case studies. So they'd put them out in, in the glass cases. And I gave a talk to open that exhibition, and someone in the audience, who was a London city councilman, uh, said, isn't there scope for something bigger here? Like particularly Cheapside, because I'd showed the map of milliners in Cheapside. And I said, I, I think there probably is scope for something bigger, yes. Um, and the city is interested in this topic because they are engaged in efforts to get more women into city government. Uh, they still, only four of their 25 aldermen are women. Uh, the first one was in the 19, 1982, I think. And the second one was in 
2013, in this century anyway. It took that long. Also this year is the anniversary of uh, the admission of women to the professions, notably law. Um, and the city is interested in trying to address their gender pay gap. Now, there is a gender pay gap in the 18th century too, and it's roughly the same as it's been in the UK for the last 30 years. Which is why any woman with capital and skills would have exploited them as an entrepreneur. But today, far more top-level prestigious work is waged or salaried than is entrepreneurial. Most people in the city work for multinationals on a salary. So waged work has spread up the social scale and the pay gap persists. Now, the nature of employment changed over the 19th century, uh, probably particularly for the middle class, but it hasn't been studied for women. So what exactly happens to female employment in the to these entrepreneurs in the 19th century, I don't know. And one of the reasons I don't know is that the guilds are no longer central to controlling the trade. So the record base kind of evaporates. The 18th century women that I found weren't hiding. One of my main resource tools has been Google. Yeah? They're, they're all out there. So if women who are now campaigning for access to city jobs and equal pay knew more about the history of women in employment and the situation in the past, and that it didn't look very different, I think they'd be much more demanding. I think they'd want to know why this hadn't changed. And that's why we chose to do it on the street in the middle of the city. So the widespread impression, which you can see in many places, including many museums, unfortunately, that women before the 20th century did not undertake gainful employment except in the case of financial need, that is, unless they were so poor that they had to work for wages, reinforces a sense of complacency and even gratitude. That the idea that, well, it will all work out, it's the rising tide of progress, it's, you know, it hasn't been very long, we'll get there eventually. Um, but what this research shows, I think, is that freedoms can be lost as easily as they are gained, and that they can be completely forgotten. So I will just end with the words of someone you may not expect in a room like this, Martin Luther King, who said, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. Thank you. <laughs>